So we're um, still in the eighth chapter of Romans. We're going to finish that up uh, tonight. Uh, chapter 8, verse 31, that's where we left off. And verse 31 begins this way. What shall we say then to these things? And so I want to stop there and talk about that sentence. In the rest of Romans 8, there's going to be five questions asked. And all of those questions relate to what has come previously. This question is not one of those five. It's a transition about what has come previously. Specifically, what Paul has just written about our being saved. Remember he said, uh, verse 28, We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And then he talked about those he foreknew and he predestined to be conformed to his Son. Uh, those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. So he's talking about the ultimate condition of the believer who will be glorified through all the things they go through. And in that, he talks about the different activities that occur because of the sovereignty of God in, in that process. Now, those, some of those, I realize, especially as, as a lifelong Baptist, that some of those verses are, you know, we struggle with those sometimes. And, and, you know, Romans 8 has verses we love in it. Later on, verse 28 is one of those. All things work together for good for those who love God are called according to his purpose. And then we don't go anywhere beyond that. And then we go to the end of Romans 8. And why can separate us from the love of God? And we don't, we don't look at all of that. All of these verses are interconnected to Paul's central thought. That's why what we discussed last week is so very important. And I just want to take a few moments to kind of go back and just, and just remind us of some things we need in understanding uh, God's Word. I, I live in a world where it's very easy, in my world, to, to have a theology that takes precedence over Scripture. What I mean by that is, you know, most guys, most pastors, most ministers have a systematic theology that we adhere to. Uh, and full of all sorts of things into it. And we get stuck in that theology. And when there are passages of Scripture that may cause difficulty for us, we tend to try to work that Scripture into our theological system. And the solution almost always should be to make sure our system fits what Scripture says. And one of the things that I have learned over the years is to simplify the things that I believe so that what I believe conforms to what God tells me. Because as I have found over the years, Scripture is a lot simpler than oftentimes we make it out to be. I have found over the years that when I come to a book in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that if I will try to understand the audience to whom it was written, if I will try to put myself in their place, I have a better grasp not only of what that meant, but how I can understand it and apply it to my life today. And I've also learned to be very careful about trying to take a verse and pull it out of its construct, out of its context, out of where it is, and try to use it to support something that I may believe. We do that, we do that all the time in, in, in our life uh, in different ways. And some of the things that, that are, are helpful uh, is to realize um, that there are times that we may believe something, uh, or think that we believe something, and we come to a passage of Scripture uh, that may seem to contradict that. We have to figure out how, how that works. And so we want to be very, very careful that we don't ever uh, 
Don't ever let the things that we believe uh, interfere with Scripture. I'll give you a very good example. There's, there are groups of people today who believe, for instance, that God uh, is not all-powerful. Even with, I'm talking about within Christianity. And that, for instance, some people believe that God does not know all things, or that God does not necessarily have power over all things. Um, that God, for instance, it's not that he lacks power at all, it's just that he is not, as we would say, sovereign over all things to power. When you come to Genesis 1, and it says that in the beginning God created everything, there was nothing he created it, then there's this understanding that there's a certain amount of power that God has. If God has the power to create everything, it would seem to make sense that God would have the power then to control everything. And God would have the final say in everything, even as it occurs. And so I'm always reluctant to, to ever talk about the things God can't do or certain limits to God's power, because I don't know that there are limits. There may be logical limits, like God can't sin. That's logic, because that's who God is. Another example I find for people all the time, and this occurs even within the Christian world, that people will say things like, uh, I just want to follow the teachings of Jesus. I just want to believe what Jesus teaches. But then they deny that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Well, in John, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. If you want to follow the teachings of Jesus, you've got to follow that. Because he taught that. And so sometimes we get a little confused about things. And I think that happens a lot, like we were talking a little bit last week about predestination. We're going to talk about it in chapter 9. Because in chapter 9... Paul brings out this unbelievable example of God determining beforehand someone whom he was going to chastise and condemn. Then we're going to come to chapter 10, where Peter, I mean, excuse me, Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised you from the dead, you'll be saved. Which seems sometimes to contradict some of the things Paul has previously written, though it doesn't. In, in Baptist life, and being, you know, I'm obviously Southern Baptist, as I hope all of you are because you're in a Southern Baptist church, whether you know it or not. Uh, you know, there, there are 121 different types of Baptist denominations. You may not have known that. Southern Baptists are probably larger than all the rest put together. And I, there's a group called Free Will Baptists. And Free Will Baptists, and I've known some, and I, and I actually, uh, in my church in Laredo, a Free Will Baptist pastor ended up following me at a Southern Baptist church, which was kind of odd. But um, free will Baptists believe that grace can be resisted and that you are saved by your faith, as we all do, but faith is something that comes to you. And because of that, they also believe it's possible to lose your salvation, which is, makes sense. If you believe in the tenets of free will salvation, that you have the free will to accept or reject God without God necessarily moving you in that direction, then it makes sense that you believe you can lose your salvation. And uh, they do that. I say that because we're about to come to a passage that argues against the ability to ever lose your salvation, but it's predicated on the understanding that it is God who saves you, that you don't save yourself. The two blend together. Paul has just written that those God foreknew, predestined, he called, justified, he glorified. The whole salvation process is of God. At the very beginning of the book, we talked about the fact that to be justified is to be declared righteous by God. Not that you are righteous, he declares you righteous. It is an act of God. Now, we may struggle with that sometimes. And as going to Baptist, and I get that. 
We still have to have faith. We still have to exercise that faith. We still have to trust. That's our responsibility. And yet, what follows now is the absolute benefit of what Paul has just said. To those God foreknew or predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Look what he says. Five questions. In light of that, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, he could ask who can be against us. There's a whole lot of people who are against us, even as Christians. And that Paul was living in a time when people would be against him. In a few years, Nero would be against him and put him to death. But Paul is not asking from a simply human standpoint. He is asking from an eternal standpoint. If God is for us, if God has done all these things, who then can oppose us from an eternal standpoint? The obvious answer is, well, no one can. So one of the great benefits that I have in knowing that God has saved me is that God saves me for all eternity and no one can any way take that against, away from me. For instance, Jesus says in John chapter 10, really critical passage. He says, my sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. He says, I know them and they follow me. He says, I give eternal life to them. I'm the one who gives it. The Father gives it through Jesus. They shall by no means ever perish. The idea of perish means to be lost. They can never be perished. It's an emphatic, the double negative. By no, 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 not possible. And he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. In other words, the word snatch is the word for rapture. You know that word you like for rapture? It's the word rapture them out. No one can snatch them from me. My father, who is greater than all, has given them to me, and no one can snatch them from the hand of my father. Then he says, I and the father are one. He and God are one. So notice what Jesus is saying. If you ever question, can we lose our salvation? Jesus says, you can't. You cannot be destroyed. You cannot be snatched. Why? Because God has nothing snatched from his hand. So if I go back and say that God foreknew me, predestined me, called me, justified me, glorified me, then the assurance is no one can really be against me. The whole purpose of persecution, by and large, was to get people to recant and renounce God. If you would recant and renounce God, they would not kill you. And some would do that. But not the true follower. During the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther believed he was going to die and be killed by the Catholics. He kind of, I wouldn't say he was looking forward to it, he just accepted it. It never happened, he died of natural causes. But he was a constant irritant to them. And he was asked one time to recant of all that he wrote. And he gave those famous words, here I stand, what else can I do? Because as a follower of Christ, when God saves us, we understand no one is truly against us. And look what he says in the next question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but notice, delivered him over for us, gave him over for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, all things does not mean all my health and all my money and all that. All things that go with being glorified. All things that go with my salvation. If he gives us salvation, has he not given us all the things that matter? And if our salvation is guaranteed in heaven to be glorified, has he not given us everything? The answer is yes. I live today knowing I have an inheritance that awaits me that I can by no means ever lose. 
Now, if I was responsible in any way for my salvation, I could also be responsible for losing it. Have you ever lost something? I have. I've lost lots of things. Right now, I lose my memory a lot, it seems. Evidently, according to my wife, I've lost my hearing. According to my, to my staff, they think I've lost good judgment. I don't know. We lose things. But if God has given us Christ, what is there that we can lose? We have everything we need. And because life is more than just this life, that's important. Remember, whenever you read the New Testament, letters, there's always written against the backdrop of persecution. Though he's writing to Rome, who has not yet experienced persecution to his full, really much at all. When he writes this, they're like seven years away, six years away from real persecution. And, and, and they're less than a decade away from Paul, James, Peter, all being put to death for their faith. That's what he says in the next verse, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? For God is the one who justifies. Well, charges were brought, you know. Caiaphas brought a charge against Jesus. Pilate brought a charge against Jesus. But that's not the reason Jesus died. He didn't die because of Pilate and Caiaphas. He died because he gave his life. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. Jesus freely gave us. God showed his great love for us. We were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He died because of that. So as a follower of Christ, will they be charged? Paul will be charged with many things. Just read the book of Acts. It's not talking about can someone bring a charge against us. Who can bring a charge against God? Here God is pictured as the judge. Who can come before the great judge? Because God not only does God judge us, he defends us. Who's going to prosecute us? Because God has already justified us. God has said, I declare you righteous. So who's going to bring a charge against the elect? No one can bring a charge in the eyes of God. It's done away with. Zechariah chapter 3. I was reading it today. It's a reference, part of my sermon Sunday. There was this picture of the, the high priest, Yeshua, the high priest, and Satan is bringing a charge against him before God. And God silences Satan and exonerates Yeshua. When God has exonerated you, no one can bring a charge. Now, why can I do that? Not because I've done anything. Because God did it. I, I like knowing that. I, I want to be on, on that place. Notice the next question. Who then is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yeah. Whether he was also raised. He's at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. Who's going to condemn us? No one can. Notice the part Jesus intercedes. Last week we saw the Holy Spirit intercedes in prayer. But Jesus intercedes for our salvation. He says, Father, this one, trust me. Father, this one, trust me. How do we know that? Because I have chosen them. We have saved them. I can't be condemned. And so we realize that when we're in Christ, and we have followed him, he gives eternal life. So we go back to John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's correct. And it is the Father who moves us to Christ. Like I always say, I still have to have faith. 
I still have to confess he's Lord. I have to do that. I am responsible. But I'm not responsible for my salvation. I'm responsible for my sin and accountable for my sin. But I must be responsible in responding in faith when God provides it. And I am. I confess that he's Lord. But I confess that he is Lord because God has brought me to that place and given me grace and faith so that I may confess he is Lord. I didn't do that. God did that. And because God did that, I have confidence no one can take that away from me. Listen, I want to live with that confidence. I don't want to live with my salvation being up to me. I will mess that up every time. So will you. But if God does it, I can't mess that up. I'll still sin. But God justified me. So verse 35 is the fifth question. And everybody loves verse 35. Now always forget everything that went ahead of it. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, obviously nothing. Tribulation means to be pressed upon. This is not talking about the great, great tribulation. This is talking about the tribulation they're about to feel under the hands of Nero, which is just a few years away. Nero would take Christians. He'd put them on crosses. He'd cover them with pitch and tar, and he would light them as torches at night. To light the streets entering Rome. That was Nero. Can that separate us from God's love? A love of Christ? No. Can the distress or the persecution or the famine or nakedness? None of the things that we experience as humans can do that. Now here's the problem. As Americans, we don't really experience any of that. So it's kind of hard for us to understand it. You realize for all of our intelligence and all for all of our insight... There's so much of scripture we don't understand because we don't experience persecution. Do you realize how much scripture, how much New Testament, even the old, but how much New Testament is written to people who are being persecuted? And when you're not persecuted, it's hard to grasp that. Now, I don't want to be persecuted. But I have a responsibility to understand that that was written to a persecuted people. I cannot, we we have this horrible tendency in the 20th and 21st century America, horrible tendency to look at our life and we take scripture and we separate it from the context and we read it in light of our circumstances. This is what Joel Osteen does. This is the whole health and wealth gospel. All of those health and wealth people, they do that. It is a horrible heresy. It is a godless heresy because it removes the context of suffering and persecution of people who would die because they were Christians. Dying for your faith is not a healthy or a wealthy prospect. We do it, we do it with in times, we do it with American, you know, civil religion, we do it constantly. And we don't understand sometimes what scripture says because we don't understand who it was written. One of the single most important is it, it, when we are interpreting, when I grew up, you know, taught in seminary, there's all these rules for interpreting scripture. 
Number one is this. Context is everything. Single most important interpretive hermeneutical rule is the context of which something was written. And Paul's writing to people who are about to be persecuted, and he says, what Nero will do to you will not separate you from the love of Christ. And that is like, wow. Why? Because Christ saved you. Quote scripture, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. So he's quoting a passage that is actually connected to the Messiah. Notice what he says in verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, we like to say we are conquerors through him, that is Christ. Christ is the one who conquers. It's like this. It's like Christ is leading this great victory, and we're in the background doing nothing, and when Christ has finished and won victorious, we get to say we won. It's like fans at a football game who have nothing to do with the victory. And the team wins, and we walk out saying, we won. And some fans actually think they have influence. Well, we were there, we were loud, it messed up the other team. Fans never win ball games. I know sometimes they'll say that just to make you happy and keep you buying stuff. Fans never win ball games unless you poison the opposing team before the game. But we all think we're, now this is, this is, we're victors. Remember, well, last year when New Mexico State won for the first time in 50-something years. Coincidence, I happened to be pastor at that day. And we all won. All these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Because Christ does. And that's what Paul says, I am convinced Notice what he says. I am convinced that neither death nor life. Now here he's not talking about two opposites. He's talking about a life of persecution. So neither death or the life that is persecuted. Nor angels or principalities. Now angels here are not good angels because why would good angels separate us from the love of Christ? I wouldn't. He's talking about the, the, the overall, any kind of spiritual, any kind of spiritual thing. Angels or principalities. Any kind of spiritual influence. The demonic, whatever, any of those spiritual influence, none of that. Things that are present, nor things to come. Nor powers that exist. That could be spiritual powers, it could be governmental powers. Not all the hypes, nor all the depths. Now notice this part, this next part is important. Nor any other created thing, which is everything but God. Okay, nothing created, which is everything but God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll come back to that. So, Paul is saying, in all of creation, that's always been, is now, and ever will be created, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that love... Is the love that is expressed to us in Christ who saves us. Now the word love is not emotion. It's the giving of self. God in Christ gave to us himself. And so Christ is the author, the perfecter of our salvation. In Christ we are saved. Through Christ we are saved. All of salvation is wrapped up in Christ. And Paul says the love of God 
is experienced in Jesus. Remember, I, I, I say a lot. I've said it in September. I'm saying it in our sermon series now. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to us. said it last week. The beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh. He is God revealed to us. And we experience the love of God in Christ. And outside of Christ, you cannot truly experience the love of God. And the love of God is the love that saves us and holds on to us. So that we don't lose what he has provided. Now, there are many within the Christian world, and I use the word Christian in its loosest possible way, that believe you can lose your salvation. The problem with that is that God says you can't. (laughs) And and you have a huge problem. And, and, And I've said this so many times. If what you're saying disagrees with God, you need to quit saying that. Now, I know how they get around it, and I know what they say, and I know what they do to circumvent these kind of passages. I get that. But at the end of the day, what they have done is they have taken their theological system And they have placed it over the clear scriptural teaching. And they have changed what scripture says. When you change what scripture says, we call that heresy. (laughs) You have a problem. Now, I know there are places that it's difficult where it talks about maybe you could lose. And and, and, uh, um, it talks about that. We're losing your salvation in Hebrews. We dealt with that that summer. We, We explained that you don't lose your salvation. You're not really saved. There's some difficult passages, but you can't take little, small, tangent passages and let them dominate what is clearly taught. This passage clearly teaches that if we are in Christ, nothing can separate us, including our sin. Now, what makes all that work? It's what Paul wrote earlier, that we have been glorified and justified and called and predestined and foreknown by God. It's all a part of God's grace, which we experience in faith. That is the picture of salvation that is presented time and time again. Same picture Paul presents in Ephesians when he writes it from a prison cell six, seven years later. It's the same picture of salvation that Jesus depicts when he talks about, for God so loved the world, gave his one and only son, who should ever believe in him and not perish, but ever after life. It's based on God loving, God working, God doing things. It's what Jesus said in John 10. When he said, Cannot, you know, sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. No one can take them from the Father. The Father saves us, secures us, and it's eternal. And I'm really thankful because I know this. If my salvation in any way, shape, form, or fashion relied on me, I would mess that up almost as much as you would. <laughs> any questions you might want to ask, be happy to answer. Any thoughts or comments?
last week we're like 20 minutes over and, and, and now I'm giving you more time and now, okay. Joe's going to get mad because I'm letting you out early. I hate when Joe gets mad at me. Me. 